0: Longreads is supported by the Star King School for the Ministry based in Oakland, known as the most progressive theological school in North America. Star King aims to educate the next generation of religious leaders through programs rooted in Unitarian Universalist values of justice, sustainability, and anti oppression. To learn more, visit sksm.edu slash Jacobin. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. When we hear the word crusade, we're most likely to picture a battle for Jerusalem, with Christian armies on one side and a Muslim force on the other. Ridley Scott put this version of history on screen in his film Kingdom of Heaven. Before I lose it, I will burn it to the ground. Your holy places, ours, every last thing in Jerusalem that drives men mad. I wonder if it would not be better if you did. In the 13th century, however, the Catholic Church declared a holy war against a group of Christian heretics in the south of France. The Albigensian Crusade became notorious for its brutality and gave rise to a new regime of feudal oppression and religious conformity in Languedoc. It was a defining moment in the history of medieval Europe. Elaine Graham Lee is an historian and the author of The Southern French Nobility and the Albigensian Crusade. I spoke with her about the events of the Crusade and its relevance to modern forms of racial and religious oppression. Why was the Catholic Church and the French monarchy concerned about what was happening in Languedoc in the 12th and 13th centuries?
1: They're concerned um, to differing amounts. First of all, so taking the kind of the, the French monarchy first, the important thing we have to understand here, just so every, everyone is is clear, is that although Longdocks, obviously the south of France, you know, we're used to it as being part of France, it very much isn't part of the the French state in any meaningful way in the the 12th and 13th centuries. In theory, the King of France is his overlord, but that's very theoretical. In practice, he's an independent lord, and and that lords who are kind of in theory to report to the count of Toulouse are also independent. And people in in Languedoc talk, when they talk about France, they'll talk about going to France as in going to a foreign country. So it's important to to remember that, that in a sense, the French kings aren't interested to the extent that they are in what's happening in Languedoc because it's theirs in any real way. And really, in in the 12th century, the king of France actually has got better things to do. So Philip Augustus, um, who's king of France at the end of the 12th century, is very busy with uh, fighting uh, wars with England. With fighting wars in Flanders and so on. He's kind of, he's actually doesn't want to really have to think about Languedoc or get involved in uh, what the church is doing in Languedoc. And when the Pope is um, calling the Arbogensian Crusade, there's actually some letters from Philip Augustus just saying, look, look, don't do this. I'm not on board with this. Don't drag me into it, kind of thing. So the French monarchy really sees an opportunity later on in the Crusade, and I'm sure we'll we'll come on to that to increase their power in in the south of France, which is what ends up happening. But to start with, they are really not keen. Well, this is different, obviously, from the, the church. So the popes are very interested in what's happening in, in Long Dog. And there's kind of two views here. And I, again, I should, I should point out that this question of the Abigensian Crusade, of heresy in the south of France and indeed elsewhere in Europe, is one of the more contentious ones in medieval history, in my view. The church is, it's not a question that, oh, there are just so many heretics in Long Dock and therefore the church has to respond to it. What makes heresy in Long Dock so problematic isn't really anything to do with the people who are labelled heretics in, in, in many ways. Almost all heresy is, it's kind of social protest. It's, a, it's not really just that, oh, you have a different doctrine to the church. It's always a way of of pointing out that, uh, that, that the church is corrupt, that the church is too wealthy and, and, and so on. It's always a challenge to the to the church and to the received order so this is why obviously the church can't ignore it but what we see when we look at medieval Europe is that in some places you can be an unregulated holy person you can wander around saying I'm practicing poverty like the apostles in the bible did and uh, I'm therefore doing it much better than the established church and that's fine no one cares I mean, no one is particularly enthusiastic about this if, uh, if we're talking about the elites. But really, if you're doing that in, say, England in the 12th century, you can do that. No one's going to call you a heretic for wondering why doing that in, in England in the 12th century. Whereas doing pretty much the same thing in Longdock in the 12th century is intensely problematic. And the reason for that, I think, is because Long Dock is this area where there isn't strong secular authority. So it's, it's actually it's not... It is, of course, part of the feudal system. I'm not implying that it's not. But the ability of the secular elites to uh, exploit the peasantry, to get surplus labour out of them and, and so on, is actually rather limited. So it's kind of seen as this dangerous area where actually no one really has very much control. So that's dangerous in just for the elites in general that actually you have this area where you have people who can go around being free peasants and not actually having to obey the church and the state um, very much. And it's also uh, dangerous for the church because actually it means that the nobles in the area can, if they want to, attack the church, and individual churchmen. And, and this is something that the Council of Toulouse, in, in fact, are carrying on in the late 12th century, carrying on various wars with various bishops in Provence where they kind of go and sack their palaces and things like that. So the church is kind of in this position where they haven't got the settlement that they'd managed to get elsewhere in, in Europe in the 12th century. Therefore, Languedoc is seen as a problematic area that, OK, we have to worry about this, whereas other places, England, for example, they don't have to worry about it. So that's why they care, is my answer to that one.
0: What were the origins of what became known in particular as the Cathar heresy and how did it fit into the wider social context of medieval Languedoc?
1: So, again, this is one of these areas that's actually really controversial in medieval historiography. So there's, there's two views. So the traditional version, in a sense, which might be ones that your that your listeners have have come across before, is that Catholicism is a dualist heresy. So that means that rather than following as Orthodox Christian doctrine, where you believe in uh, God the Father, His Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there's a devil, but the devil is kind of subordinate. So that's the, yeah, that's obviously Orthodox Christianity. But dualists believe that there are two gods who have who are equal and have equal power. So you have the good God of heaven and the evil God of this world, which means that all material things are created by the evil god so that means that you have to endure them so they become so they have all sorts of ascetic practices and they don't eat meat and they don't marry and 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 so on but they also reject obviously any sort of established church having wealth and kind of buildings and things because these are all material things so the idea is is that this arrives in long dock from um, bulgaria and so the and, the and so the balkan area and there's a set called the Bogomils. Uh, which is somewhat earlier so the so the the idea in this in this view is that it's kind of imported into uh um, into the south of france and then that it becomes a, a separate hierarchy so they're not part of the christian church uh, in Languedoc. they are a completely separate church and they have their own bishops and, uh, and their own organization and so on so this is kind of a you know a sect an alternative church that uh that sort of sweeps up people through all levels of, uh, of of long dock society. So there's a particular thing about noble women uh, being being Cathart, um, being part of being part of the sect. That's the the, the traditional view of it. There is another view. <laughs> we, which is which is one that, that that I subscribe to, which is actually that this kind of whole edifice of this idea that that Catholicism is effectively a, a separate church from the Catholic Church is that there isn't there isn't really very good evidence for this at all, and what evidence there is for any sort of organisation or really indeed people having that very kind of extreme set completely dualist belief is is very patchy and and is very late you know, we we, we start talking about heresy and long dot being a problem in kind of the mid-11th century. And the only really good evidence that there is, there's some disputed evidence, which I'm not going to go into detail about, but it's disputed. Um, The only really good evidence for this kind of dualism uh, in this extreme form really is kind of much later than that. And it might be that this is actually either created by the questioning of the Inquisition, because most of the evidence we have is from uh, records of people being interrogated by the Inquisition, or that this is the the Heresy becoming kind of rather more organised and sect-like, if you like, under pressure from the Inquisition. This maybe isn't what it was like to start with before it was starting to be, to be persecuted. It's worth pointing out that for contemporaries, no one in Languedoc ever uses the word Cathar. This is only ascribed to heretics in the, South, in the South of France by much later historians. It's not something that's ever used in the 12th, 13th, or 14th century at all. Um, it is sometimes used in Italy, but not specifically for dualist heretics. In Italy, it's used as kind of, it's a word for heretics generally. Um, so we kind of, you know, we talk about this as if it's a name for a sect and the sect has these, has these uh, uh, features. And that's really not how people in Languedoc were thinking about it. It's also true that inquisitors and so on will tend to in long dog they they tend to talk about followers of the heretical depravity is the phrase and they'll use that for anyone who who is actually kind of resisting the inquisition it does it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what doctrine these people might follow so basically i think the you know the question of kind of the origins of the cathar heresy is in a sense it's almost rather a trick question because in a way there might not be something that is the Cathar heresy in that kind of rather reified way. It's been reified, first of all, maybe by the Inquisition, and second of all, by historians. It doesn't really, when we're talking about Cathars, we're not really talking about a kind of an actual sect that necessarily existed in the way that we think of it. This isn't to say that there aren't people who have dualist beliefs. I mean, to be honest, I kind of feel that a, a fair amount of dualist belief is rather inherent in Christianity, which is why it kind of keeps popping up. And there very clearly are a substantial number of people in Longeddoc who have um, dissenting beliefs in uh, in one way or another and as, as I referred to, once the Abncy crusade gets going, once the Inquisition gets going, anyone who opposes any of this is called a heretic they don 't have to have any actual kind of you know religious dissent at all, but before this, there clearly are lots of people in Longdoc who are adopting a particular ascetic life, They're probably they're, quite a lot of them are kind of wandering holy people. And that is, that, that practising what's called apostolic poverty is a, a threat and a criticism of the established church and the established order. So in Long Dot, they're called good men and good women. And clearly these people exist, but they don't necessarily think of themselves as being not Christian or following a different, a different doctrine. They think of themselves as being the best Christians. And this is this is quite apparent in the in what they say. There's a there's a great uh, line from uh, somebody who's being arrested in uh, in Toulouse in, in 1234 for being a heretic. And as he's being dragged off by the the men at arms serving the Inquisition, he shouts out, "Good people, listen to me! I am not a heretic, for I lie and I swear, and I and I, ha- I have a wife and I sleep with her. I have sons, and therefore I cannot be uh, a heretic." So he's pointing out that he doesn't practice these ascetic things, which really most Christians are supposed to do. You know, you're not supposed to lie and swear. So therefore, he can't be a heretic because the heretic is are simply the best Christians.
0: So in terms of the, the viewpoint, the perspective that you've been describing there You think it would be a mistake to see Catharism as having been a distinctive version of Christianity that had its own organisational structures, a little like the Hussite church in Bohemia in the 15th century or the Lutheran church during the Reformation in Germany?
1: Yeah, I think it's very clearly not. I mean, there's there's an argument that you can make slightly more of a convincing argument for there being, it's a bit more sort of organized as a sect in Italy once you start getting into the later 30th century. But um, even there, I don't think the evidence is particularly good. But certainly in, in Languedoc, the evidence for it being an alternative church is largely there's a, a document which is support, purported to be the um, details of a Cathar council held at a village called San Felix in uh, the 1160s, I believe. And that's supposed to be, this is where our evidence for, OK, they've got their own bishops and things like that come, comes from largely. And it is reasonably widely called into question as whether this is a real document or not. And I and I don't think it is. I think it's a forgery. There's some actually quite good evidence that it's a 17th century forgery. But even if it's medieval, I think it's it's... At best, it's a 13th century fraud. I don't think that this is actually a real thing that happened in the middle of the 12th century. I think we need to see the heresy in the south of France as being about these sort of apostolic poverty movements, It's social you know, all. It's not that there isn't dissent going on, but it's not, as you say, an alternative church. And I think that the kind of idea that, OK, this is sort of you know infection from the Balkans that comes from comes from the mystic east and uh, individuals come and spread it to the south of France. And it's kind of seeing it as, in a sense, an outside context problem, as if it's something that just, just happens to this particular place in the south of France. Whereas really, we need to see the religious dissent that we're seeing in, in Languedoc as part of that society. It's not something that's introduced from elsewhere. And, and the interesting thing is that when you read historians talking about the, the Bogomils the, the sect in the uh, Balkans and um, and Bulgaria they don't have any really very good evidence that um, Bogomils are sort of proper dualists or that they're really organised into being an alternative church either so their arguments for the Bogomils having these characteristics is oh well they must have done because look they gave rise to the Cathars and the Cathars did so it kind of becomes this rather circular argument and I think none of us have really very good evidence for the cathars being a kind of organised sect. The points of where you can see in kind of inquisition records and things, you can see things that imply that they might be. I think it's, It's very often, I think, church paranoia that, oh, there's these these heretics and they're sneaking around and they're organised and they're plotting against us. You see some of this in some papal letters from uh, Pope Innocent III, who's the pope who called the crusade. But just because Innocent thinks that there are organised people plotting against him doesn't mean that there really were.
0: So how was the decision eventually made to launch the Albigensian Crusades?
1: Well, it's in response to a particular event, which is the murder of a papal legate. So just to sort of to set the scene. So what's been going on since around the eleven sixties? You've had sort of periodic missions to Long Dog, usually involving Cistercians, because the the Cistercian order is uh, has its particular uh sort of mission uh, it, it in the south of France against heresy, and they're used very extensively, particularly by Innocent III, who's a big fan of the Cistercians. So he kind of he employs them as sort of the church's shock troops, if you if you like. So they've been kind of going around and preaching and excommunicating local lords who aren't playing ball with them and this sort of thing. And this has been going on um, throughout the, the 12th century. And Innocent III, who becomes uh, pope in 1198, is kind of on a mission about heresy generally. His you know his big important papacy is very much about increasing the power of the papacy and the power of the church and so on. So he's, he sends various um, sort of papal deputies called papal legates um, to Long Dog to exhort the, uh, the the local lords to do something about heretics in their lands and investigate bishops who aren't who aren't doing their job and get rid of them and this kind of thing and they're sort of wandering around Long Dog doing this. And obviously really getting on the nerves of large numbers of the local aristocracy who they're kind of badgering. And this um, particular legate, um, Pierre Castle now, does have a bad reputation as being Completely intolerable. It's <laughs> obviously really, really disliked by um, by the aristocracy, and he gets himself murdered. So he's murdered at the, in early 1208 by um, retainers of the Count of Toulouse. So we don't know why this was. We don't know if it was actually ordered by the Count of Toulouse. It seems like it was quite a stupid thing to do. One thinks that maybe it was a kind of Henry II, Thomas Beckett thing, where, you know, you know Henry II kind out, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And these four knights go off and rid him of the turbulent priest by priest by murdering Thomas Beckett. So maybe it was something like that. But in any case, you can't let people go around murdering people like papal legates and not respond to it. So when Innocent gets the news of that Pierre de has been murdered, that's the point at which he calls the crusade. And it's really emphasising that crusading in this period now is it's a way that the papacy can call on troops, basically. No, if, he, if Innocent had had a standing army, then he would have sent his standing army to Longlock. He doesn't have a standing army, so he calls a crusade. And that's how it all starts.
0: What was the military outcome of the crusades? And were there any further attempts at rebellion after the proclamation of victory by the crusaders in 1229?
1: Um, yes, so it, 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 it rumbles on for a while. So um, so what happens, so the first sort of major thing that happens in the crusades, so the crusaders gather in the sort of the, the east of France and Lyon originally and then they get to uh, Provence and then they um so then the Count of Toulouse who is quite a wily guy this Raymond VI uh, de Saint-Gilles Innocent calls him changeable and crafty shifting and inconstant which which I love as a, a as a description so that so the crusade is called against him specifically but he goes and meets the crusaders and joins the crusade that is supposed to be against him. So the Crusaders are then kind of sitting there, you know, in Provence, going kind of, uh, well, what do we do now then? So the first target of the Crusade becomes not the Count of Toulouse, but the Viscount of Bezier and Carcassonne, who's a, a guy called Raymond Roger. From, the family name's called the Tronquerville, which is useful to remember because it's kind of a good shorthand way to refer to the ball. So they attack Bezier and they sack Bezier. This is uh, uh, 1209. Uh, this is where uh, the famous remark of Arnold uh, aimri who's one of the papal legates who's leading the crusade at this point, outside the sack of Béziers, supposedly his lieutenants come up to him and say, no, well, yeah, OK, we're, we're, we're in the city, we're about to start sacking it, but what should we do? We we cannot tell the, the good people from the bad. And Arnold Aymery says, oh, kill them all. God will know his own, supposedly. So they sack Bezier. Um and then they uh um, they go past Nabon, take the surrender of Nabon, they get to Carcassonne Carcassonne surrenders to them uh the Trennkvel Viscount is uh trapped in in his own prison where he um he shortly dies, so they've got this nice sort of um bunch of territory now in the centre of Languedoc that they can use as a base of operations, so one of the crusaders, Simon de Montfort, accepts the viscounty of, of Carcassonne, which makes him the, the leader of the crusade, and then they spend the next let's it say twenty years basically fighting their way round Longdog. So the, the, the big sort of set-piece battle which really determines whether the crusade was going to be militarily successful or not is uh, the Battle of Mure in 1213, where the crusaders are fighting the King of Aragon, because the King of Aragon has actually lots of, sect- of interests in Longdog. Um, and he had he wasn't opposed to the crusade to start with, but he had come to see it as a threat to his control of the area, which indeed it was. So the crusaders uh, win the Battle of Mure. They managed to uh, um to, to kill the king of Aragon in the battle in in the process, and then really that's they're going to win at this point, although it takes really quite a long time up till then till as you say there's the, the surrender in the uh, in twelve twenty nine and then it kind of rumbles on so there's pockets of uh, of resistance people have probably heard of uh, the castle of uh, of Montségur. Which is one of these ones on this enormously high rock that you get uh, in this part of France? That forced the Crusaders, well, the French King, the French King's army by that point in um, uh, 1244. It's often said to be, "Oh, this is a holdout of heretics," but only in the sense that anyone opposing the French royal armies and the uh, and the Crusade at this point is a heretic. So it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. But really, what you have is a good. Eighty years, really, of resistance at different levels to the Crusaders, to the imposition of French royal authority, um, and uh, and to the Inquisition. So initially, in the earlier 13th century, there, there was considerable noble resistance. So the son of the Viscount of Carcassonne tries to take Carcassonne back in 1240. He fails, but this is kind of a big rebellion. The son of the Count of Toulouse the manages to get Toulouse back and carries on being Count of Toulouse. But there's various issues around that as well. Count of Foix sometimes is involved in resistance and sometimes isn't. But what happens over the over throughout the 13th century, is that the nobles are kind of really making their peace with French royal authority, deciding that actually what's happening to Longueil actually allows them to extract more resources from their lands than they had been able to before. So maybe this isn't such a bad deal that they're getting. And it becomes something that's actually much more class-based resistance. So by the end of the 13th century and the early 14th century, what, you, what you're having actually is, is is the lower classes still resisting the Inquisition, um, the Fre- French Royal Authority, and then also the kind of local elites as well. So it's become, it's gone from being, in a sense, almost it's not a national liberation struggle because that's an anachronistic term when we're talking about the 13th century, but a 13th century version thereof and becomes actually kind of class-based resistance through the um, imposition of greater feudal authority.
0: On that final point about feudal authority, what kind of social and political order was imposed on Languedoc in the aftermath of the Crusade?
1: Well, what the um, the French kings are, are very keen to do is to impose the customs of Northern France. So, on the face of it, that yeah, that does. You might think, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. So it, it's things like the, you know, the, the law codes that are in use in northern France, the currency changes. So in the 12th century, they used what's called Melgorian souls, um, which is uh, um, silver coinage from silver that's mined by the Council of Toulouse. In the south of France to leave Tournois, which is the, the currency of, uh, of of northern France, so there's kind of things like that which which must which must have had some effect because it's kind of saying to you, okay, you are now in a sense under foreign occupation, so you, you know your laws are the same as when as uh, as the the power that's. Uh, that, that's ruling you. But really what's happening is it's, it's much more meaningful than that because it is the imposition of authority that actually functions. So I think I, I said at the beginning that in the 12th century you don't really have a lot of secular authority that actually functions. So all of these laws like the Council of Toulouse and the the, the by Council of Bézier and Carcassonne and they obviously have some lands from which they can extract resources because if they didn't they wouldn't be able to be Higher nobility, but there's large parts of long dock that they that they in theory control where clearly they have no authority at all and you have the you have evidence of of, you know villages that can fortify themselves towns that move around between a a hilltop site and a, a site down by the river really without asking anybody's leave they just do what they feel really and there's really very there's not really any authority that can tell them what to do and what you see in the in the course of the 13th century is this really kind of intensive period of of, of feudalization effectively in in long where people are coming under authority that actually can say well you have to pay this in taxes and yes this is the time you know, this is the time to work and this is the religious festival and uh, we're going to manage like actually when you work when you pray where your town is there's quite there's examples of uh, of towns being moved around um particularly by uh, uh, by st louis after he's put down the trankevals rebellion in 1240 there's kind of, there's a fair bit of this and demolishing walls and and so on and really kind of and what we see is not just the uh, french royal authority doing some tax collecting and things which you know, they were not doing in long dog in the 12th century but also the um the surviving um a higher aristocracy are themselves upping their game in a sense. So the counts of uh, Foix, for example, do a kind of a big hearth survey in in the early 14th century, where they can actually write down everyone who lives in their county and how much tax they owe the count. That is not something that anyone was going to be able to do in the 12th century. So. I mean, this is a process that we can see has happened elsewhere in Europe, but really, this is something that's happening over the course of really from the early 11th century onwards, if not if not slightly earlier. And what happens in Longdock is, in a sense, it hits Longdock kind of in the space of about 80 years, um, which obviously is yeah, you know, that's quite it's quite intense, it's quite an intensive uh, process. And of course, this is being as they. Uh, earlier process in the 11th century and so on elsewhere in Europe is done not just through the imposition of secular authority, but when, in partnership with the church. I and mean, this is kind of in a way almost what the church is for in the middle East, in the medieval period. It is what uh, as being being described as Christian lordship, so the church provides the justification for the the imposition of this of this feudal authority. And what's what's happening in Longdock is that this is being done through the the Inquisition. So you have kind of the imposition of French royal authority and the Inquisition are the kind of two poles in a sense that's that being combined to impose this uh, the, this new settlement uh, on Longdock. And it was we we can see that it was very clearly perceived as both unjust and as foreign occupation. So you have people saying that they feel that they are under foreign occupation as late as the early 14th century. This isn't something that's just, you know, oh, yes, you know, five years after the crusade, then everyone's, everyone's angry about this. This is something that doesn't go away. So, in fact, you have a, a very big revolt in, uh, in Carcassonne in um, 1303. And that is, in a sense, an apogee of, uh, of resistance. And it's very clearly actually class-based resistance to this whole settlement to the Inquisition and to French royal authority and to this whole kind of edifice of, of, of foreign occupation, if you like.
0: The French historian Emmanuel Leroy Ladery wrote a famous book in the 1970s called Montaillou, which is about peasants in a medieval village after the Albigensian Crusade, and it was based on the records of the Inquisition. Do contemporary historians consider it to be on the whole a uh, reliable account of what French peasant society was like at that time
1: <laughs> it's an interesting question i think i mean, again i don't I don't think I could claim that there's a consensus really but um but yes, I mean, I think I think what you're sort of alluding to there is that there there are a number of uh, very eminent historians who've been really quite rude about uh, um, Leduise uh, uh, Montaillou. I think with with some small justification, but I think a lot of the criticisms actually are kind of rather nitpicking. So just so for to explain to for people who who don't know, so what what Lagerie did was he took um, a collection of uh, records of the Inquisition interrogating people from. From this village, small village called Montayu, which is kind of down in the south of the county of, uh, of Foix, quite near the sort of the Pyrenees, and they were all there. There was a kind of a big um, push by the Inquisition in the, uh, the sort of first decade or so of the fourteenth uh, century against uh, on this area. So, there's quite a lot of uh, um, quite a lot of the villagers were were called into the Inquis- Inquisition and, and interrogated, and they're quite so they're quite intensive. And because they're all the same villages, if you like, they're kind of you can cross reference their testimonies against each other so it's actually it's it, it's a it's a very rich source um and what lagerie did which no one had really done before was look at this not strictly speaking as evidence for how heretical they are which is really how this source had been used before but for what else you could you could glean about you know their lives their attitudes to things and and so on so it was he was using this as, for social history in a way that no one had done before and and that was that was really groundbreaking and it's it's particularly so for Longdock because Um, unlike in lots of other places we don't really have very many narrative sources for long dog we have lots of administrative documents and that's kind of it really so like say in comparison to english history where you have lots of uh, long wordy chronicles that you can use to reconstruct what's going on and how people are living and so on you can't do that for long dog but what you do have for long dog is inquisition records so i think while we can be yeah, picky about Ladgery. I think we have to recognise that it is an immense achievement and gives, I think, other historians and ideas about how we can use these documents. I mean, he does get some things wrong. I mean, he continually forgets that what he's got is the Latin write up of an interrogation, which would not have been in Latin. He does have a bad habit of treating them as if they are actual taped recordings of what someone said, and they're, they're not. They're, they're meeting, effectively, they're meeting and it's written up in a different language. So you have to take that into account. And there's far too many times where he sort of says, Oh, the choice of word here means X. And it's like, yeah, but it was the Inquisitors who chose that word, you know. And it it, it is sometimes when you analyze it, because he's using the same anecdote to prove lots of different things you kind of hear the same anecdote again and again and you when you're reading it you kind of think if I hear one more time about how this woman had her tongue cut out I am going to scream because I've heard this about 10 times but having said all that I don't think that it's fundamentally inaccurate so i think if if listeners are wondering whether it's worth reading Montu it absolutely is i mean I think if you want to write a new work of um social history about Long Dog, I think you have to go to the original that's in Latin uh, rather than writing it just from montaou but it it's a it's a great book, and you will get a sense of what life was like in the foothills of the Pyrenees in the early fourteenth century so yes it's it's definitely it's definitely worthwhile and the Carelessness and inaccuracies do not mean that we should disregard it.
0: How would you say the Albigensian Crusade fits into the wider pattern of heresy and its suppression in medieval Europe?
1: I mean, in one sense, it's an anomaly because you know it, it, it is the crusade against heresy. This isn't then a tactic that has kind of rolled out itself elsewhere. And I think, I think, Innocent the Pope Innocent III, who, who called the crusade himself, felt that it got away from him. And I think he wasn't he i think he it, um certainly the the effects of the crusade on particularly the Count of toulouse um who i suspect was rather, was rather handsome and innocent rather fell for when he actually met him, I think he kind of regretted this. So it's not that it sets a it's not that it sets a precedent in a sense, but it is kind of the culmination, if you like, of a kind of the church sort of working it working itself up and the papacy working up to take heresy more and more seriously and call for more and more draconian efforts against against heresy throughout the twelfth century. And I think what it represented for the church is kind of the end of thinking that you could deal with religious dissent and with these kind of worrisome areas where you kind of feel like we don't have control, this is all getting away from us, what are we gonna do, that you could deal with that just through exhorting bishops to do a bit more, and the, what, what this, what it leads to, of course, is the establishment of the Inquisition, and this, this then becomes something that's really central to the work of the Church and the work of indeed of secular authorities against any form of dissent disagreements groups that are seen as uh, outside the norm and so on so this is this is a really important development and i don't think that it would have been possible to do that without the kind of dislocation of the abigensian crusade and the way that that's okay this is kind of remaking this society creating this crisis where you can set up these new organizations that will that will proceed to uh, to, to do the to do the work that they had been trying to do through sort of, the Cistercians and the bishops and so on and hadn't been able to. So it's kind of a hinge point, I think, is probably the, uh, um, the the best way that I can put it. But even with the Inquisition, we shouldn't see that as the church acting on its own. I mean, the, the Inquisition acts with the support of, of secular authorities in France, with with the, with the royal authority, and it's very much actually, we can see that in the way the church and state are acting together against heresy in the 13th century and long much more than, than they ever did, really did in the in the 12th. So just because it's sort of set up a new uh, religious organisation doesn't mean that the state then just doesn't have to have involvement in it. It's actually, in fact, quite the opposite.
0: What does the concept of the persecuting society that was developed by the historian Ori Moore in a book with that concept in its title refer to?
1: So what Broadmoor argued, um, and I think he's right on this, I I absolutely agree with him, is that what you see happening from the beginning in the 11th century but really gathering pace in the 12th century is deliberate, and he he says, deliberate and socially sanctioned violence directed mostly through elite activity, through institutions, um, through governmental behaviour and so on against groups of people defined by general characteristics such as race, religion or way of life. So that, and then membership of those groups then becomes itself a justification for persecution. So this can be if if you're a heretic, if you're a Jew, um, if you're a leper. So yeah, to also do in a sense slightly slightly more obvious groups, but also but also groups that can be seen as sort of suspect. Kind of you can be if, you, if you're a miller, for example, because they live sort of outside the villages, and although you know what are they up to, that they might be a bit a, a bit dodgy. So what this is about is we we shouldn't see it as sort of individual bigotry. You know, sometimes people discuss these kind of outbreaks of persecution that you get in the in the central to late Middle Ages as being as if it's about just individuals decide you know, the kind of irrationality of, of individual medieval people, and that that's really not what's going on. So what this what it really is, and what more I think identified is that really this is kind of an elite tactic that is, is involved at increasing elite power. So ultimately, this is going to increase their power to exploit the peasantry, basically, because that's what you know, power of the elites is based on, ultimately. And the reason, why, the reason why it does that is partly that old kind of you know, divide and rule thing, but it's also really because it gives them a claim to a particular authority and to particular power that they don't actually have, but they can claim that they have over these sort of groups that they have defined as a threat. So, if you are so, it, it kind of reaches its apogee, I think, um, with the uh, Capetian monarchs in, in France in the um, late thirteenth, early fourteenth century, particularly Philip the Fourth, Philippe Lebel. and he is kind of—he's clearly a bit of an odd chap and a bit paranoid anyway, so there is a sort of personal characteristic here. But he's also trying to trying to practice what uh, you could call sort of Capetian absolutism. And part of the basis of his claim to be this kind of actual, you know, should be this absolute monarch and has this amazing power and authority and so on, which he really struggles to have in reality, is because he posits himself through the way that uh, his administration approaches groups like the Jews, um, groups like, her- like heretics and so on, as if he kind of is you know he's he is the foremost christian warrior against invisible enemies and so in that sphere he can appear to be preeminent so it's an argument for you know he is the greatest christian king and he is working he is the best ally of the church and he has all this authority and therefore all the uh, the counts and so on in 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 France should obey him And 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 he's better than them. It sets him apart as a king. So it kind of it creates this edifice of him being incredibly powerful and incredibly victorious. So you know, he, for example, they expels the Jews from uh, from France in thirteen oh six, I believe. (laughs) So that's you know he can act against the, against these groups and see he has won this great victory against the enemies of Christendom. The fact that he can't actually collect his taxes reliability without his tax collectors being attacked, that's kind of a set aside compared to the authority that he has in this kind of, in a way, supernatural sphere. So the point with, I think, the, per- the persecuting society, which I which I think is, is really important, is that we have to see it in kind of relational terms. That the point of this was not to reach a point where you didn't have anyone who was a heretic. For example. The point of this persecutory activity, whether it's done by kings, whether it's done by the Inquisition, whether it's combination, you know, whoever it is who's doing this, the point of the activity was the practice of the persecuting society in itself. It's that it's kind of throwing the society into a ferment of so persecution and suspicion which enables authorities like the, the kings of, like the kings of France to say, right, well I am the foremost warrior against all these threats that I've stirred you up to be afraid of. And it's that that is really what it's, what it's aimed at, if you like. That's, that's, what, it, that, that's what it does. It's, kind of, it's, it's, it's really the origin of the use of oppression to aid exploitation, ultimately.
0: What relevance would you say the Albigensian crusade has to later examples and forms of oppression, perhaps carrying right up to the present day?
1: Yeah, see, I, I, think, it's, I think it's that. I think it's that this is actually where elites learnt that you can you can use oppression in this way actually as a as a way of of supporting your system of exploitation. So I think this is actually the historical so not just the Arbigente Crusade, but the whole edifice of attacking heresy and that leads on to the Inquisition that can persecute in society. The, this is where actually this is the historical origins of modern day oppressions. Like, you know, this is this is the model that is the precedent, if you like, for um, modern societies to use racism in exactly the same way. That um, this is the origin of, of anti-Semitism and of course, it becomes in if when you look at actually its nature and how it works, it becomes very different in the modern period. But actually, this is the historical origins of it. The capitalist system is a historical system; it derives its characteristics from the feudal mode of production before it. And this is and this is one of those things that is really the way that modern oppression is used to divide us, to make us not see that our class interests are are the same. Is actually something that is inherited from the Middle Ages, and arguably. That ability that the persecuting society gives a figure like um, Philip IV to, you know, kind of take on these invisible enemies and bestride the world like a colossus as long as it's against invisible enemies as opposed to actual physical enemies. That arguably is still true today. I mean, if you think of how sort of right wing governments deciding to, uh, distract people from uh, the, the effect of their appalling policies by deciding that okay we're going to bang on about refugees today. Arguably that is still actually a function that oppression is playing and that again, that comes from this period in medieval history. This is the, the, the persecuting society of which the Albigensian crusade was very clearly a part is part of that. So I think it's important that we understand this and we understand how it works because it isn't just oh well it's, it's many hundred years ago it's not relevant for us. This is our history in a direct line in a sense. And I think you can't, you can't really understand how modern oppression functions unless you understand that history.
0: Many thanks to Elaine Graham-Lee for that account of the Albigensian crusade. You can also read her article about the crusade on the Jacobin website. Long Reads is brought to you in association with Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles, which are now available to buy directly from the publisher. They include titles like Amelia Horgan's highly praised book, Lost in Work. British Labour politician John Macdonald has described it as a book that helps us appreciate the long history of the working class challenge to the tyranny of work.